Hi, this is Erica Spiegelman, author of Rewired, A Bold New Approach to Addiction and Recovery, and you're listening to Rebellion Dog Radio. Hey, clean and sober radio land. Welcome back to Rebellion Dogs Radio, a 21st century look at 12-step life, now with less dogma and more bites. Erica Spiegelman has a book out called Rewired, A Bold New Approach to Addiction and Recovery. It's both of those things. It explores 12 principles to healthy recovery, authenticity, honesty, evolution, solitude, time management, self-care, healthy relationships, gratitude, compassion, love, affirmations and intentions, and hope. Anything shouldn't be on that list? I think it's pretty good. Erica is a UCLA-trained California State Certified Drug and Alcohol Counselor. Later in the show, I'll share with you our discussion. We talked about her book, Why Her Experience Suggests That a New Approach Was in Order. Or is it a new approach? It may be a fresh look at age-old wisdom. Why become the author of our own recovery? Well, if we go to Eastern philosophy for that, the Buddha would call recovery peace and answer the question with, Peace comes from within. Do not seek it without. For those who think young, and I mean Carl Jung, your vision will become clear only when you can look into your own heart. Who looks outside dreams? Who looks inside awakes. Carl had a really cool way of uh, solving the gender problem with his pronouns. That's pretty cool. Who looks outside dreams, who looks inside awakes. Anyway, I digress. Now this quote is from Beyond Belief Agnostic Musings for 12-Step Life, March 11th, for those of you keeping score at home, by, you may know him as J. Donald Waters, born 1926 and died April 2003, a few months after Beyond Belief was first published. Walters was better known to some as Swami Kriyananda. That would be to his followers. He was a disciple of and teacher of Yoga Andra. Here's what he said about uh, following our own inner guidance or authenticity. Solutions are difficult to come by rationally. The reasoning mind is like a rudderless ship. It describes interesting patterns on the water, but it lacks a sure sense of direction. The rudder of inner guidance comes from superconscious levels of awareness. Not being a hundred percent sure what he means by consciousness, let alone superconsciousness, I will defer to his uh, wisdom and say that my gut feeling concurs that inner guidance is way better than anything a guru would tell you anyway, and I think he would agree. I know Erica Spiegelman would, and we won't leave her out of the discussion. Uh, About authenticity, the first of her chapters, she says the following. The word authentic is a combination of Latin and Greek words meaning coming from the author, and one who acts independently. 
I interpret this as you are the author of your own life. It also means of undisputed origin and accurate, trustworthy, reliable. When your authentic voice can be trusted, there is no need to look elsewhere for guidance. No guru, therapist, teacher, or best-selling writer can give you better answers than the ones you find within. There can be no permanent recovery without an awareness of oneself as unique in all of the world. And because no two people will ever think, feel, and live exactly alike, the authentic voice will always be more accurate, more informed to your situation than any cookie-cutter recovery program. In this way, you can begin to think of recovery as an adventure of deep self-exploration, a journey to your core. Hmm. So if it's valid that enlightenment, what we call recovery from alcoholism, comes from within, then there is something very critical about how AA itself or any 12-step peer-to-peer fellowship is structured. You see, our inverted pyramid structure that all 12-step fellowships are based on, with members and groups as the ultimate authority on the flat top of of the inverted pyramid and leaders as servants below us, this is critical to personal autonomy and responsibility. AA didn't invent this inverted pyramid paradigm and the 12-step communities aren't the only ones that use it today. UPS and other businesses see customers and customer service staff as the ultimate authority. So the power of decision comes from their own version of an inverted triangle with frontline workers at the base along the top and the management acting in support roles below them. If peer-to-peer 12-step, 12-tradition fellowships were regular pyramid-style organizations, it'd be a hierarchy. General service leaders and sponsors, sponsors, sponsors at the tip of the pyramid and groups and newcomers at the base along the flat bottom. But that's not how it's structured. Every member decides his or her membership status and takes responsibility for or self-authors her or his recovery. Each group finds its own unique path in carrying the message to the alcoholic or addict that still suffers. Our experience is our only currency. There's no expertise to peddle. Recovery is our responsibility, not a sponsor's and not the group's. There's no authority, no master, no student, and no holy writ. We are peers sharing a common malady. We are equals who paid our dues before we got here. Our addiction took unique turns, and our recovery will too. We each find our own way. John Kay is someone I've quoted before on this show. I had lunch with John while in New York to visit GSO's archives. As a director of AA World Service at the turn of the century, John is on record for saying, Our co-founders were pragmatists. Try something, test it, change it, review it, test it, then change it and test it again. As a result, our knowledge as a fellowship is based not on logic or revelation or authority, 
it is based on experience, on what works, and as such, it is always subject to change. Now, it was my great fortune that John invited to lunch George D. He's a former GSO uh, general manager. George has been both a delegate and a trustee and has been sober since the 50s. Remember Phyllis and Ward, who came from GSO to speak at We Agnostics and Freethinkers International AA Conference in November 2014? Well, George is one of the resources that these two would go to, be it about AA's history or even what might be best for AA's future. The three of us had lunch in May, and right now, at the time of recording this show, both John and George are getting ready for panels at AA's 80th anniversary in Atlanta. The panels cover ideas from the chapter A Vision for You and might be entitled We Realize We Know Only a Little or More Will Be Revealed. George just got back from Maui. Some of you who are listening know Rich H. from Hawaii, and I'm sure he can tell you more about George. George is a character. He's a treasure of AA experience, and on this day he was very enthusiastic about the ideas held within a pamphlet he was carrying, a member's eye view of AA. This pamphlet is unique in that it's not created by the General Service Literature Committee per se. It's a copy of a speech given by a member, Alan M. He was talking to UCLA in the late 1960s. Now it was a treat to reread this essay. It reinforces today's theme. Almost without exception, every AA member has been given advice, instruction, or urging from partners, loved ones, healthcare professionals, co-workers, law enforcement, spiritual healers, even our bartenders. What rings true in a member's eye view is what's different in the 12-step meeting between two addicts or alcoholics. The pamphlet says, an alcoholic suddenly heard a different drummer. Instead of the constant and menacing rat-a-tat-tat of this is what you should do, he or she heard an instantly recognizable voice saying, this is what I did. I'm personally convinced that the basic search for every human being from the cradle to the grave is to find at least one other human being before whom he or she can stand completely naked, stripped of all pretense or defense, and trust that person not to hurt them. Because that other person has stripped themselves naked too. This lifelong search can begin to end with the first AA encounter. She or he realizes that they've been invited to share in the experience of recovery. And the key word in that sentence is the word share. Whether she or he responds to it immediately or ever is not at the moment important. What is important is that the invitation is that the invitation has been extended and remains, and that she or he has been invited to share as an equal. Even the sickest alcoholic is hard put to deny that she or he has been offered understanding, equality, and an already proven way out. 
and she or he is made to feel that they are in fact entitled to all of this. Indeed, he or she has already earned it simply because we're an alcoholic. The intuitive understanding the alcoholic receives, while compassionate, is not indulgent. Erica is going to speak uh, more to that later. I did take some uh, pronoun liberties in that, but that's the gist of uh, part of what this author, Alan, had to say. So the healing comes as much from expressing ourselves as from listening to others. Ultimately, the answers come from within. So the power, the decision-making capacity is left with the member and the member's group. And the purpose of any service structure below us is to support these efforts. Again, this inverted triangle idea isn't unique in the recovery community. Here's how the inverted triangle or pyramid is described by the business community, especially in the fast-paced 21st century business environment, right of decision has to empower those at the front lines. In an article called, What is the Importance of the Inverted Pyramid in an Organization? by W.D. Adkins, we see that traditional management models are hierarchies, Authority and decision-making power are concentrated at the top of the organizational pyramid. Orders are issued and carried out by subordinates. The inverted pyramid in an organization challenges the traditional model. Advocates argue that the 21st century business environment is characterized by rapid change and requires greater flexibility than traditional organizational approaches provide. Here's the concept. The inverted pyramid is a metaphor for a reversal of traditional management practices. Employees who are closest to clients or production are placed at the top and the managers at the bottom. The employee is empowered with greater decision-making authority and freedom of action. The manager becomes a facilitator spearheading a team effort. In theory, overall organizational performance becomes faster, more adaptable, and more effective. The philosophy is that this organizational structure will promote empowerment. By inverting the pyramid and putting the base at the top, a leader adopts a more efficient mindset. Management is focused on asking employees what they need to accomplish a task and making sure those resources are available. The effective leader learns to trust subordinates and rely on the ability to achieve organizational goals. You'll also see on the internet they talk about avoiding the perverted inverted triangle. So these things aren't flawless, just like uh, AA. The truth is that many organizations begin the inverted pyramid journey but few actually succeed in reaping the benefits. It seems that far too many organizations are developing flat tires or simply running out of gas, far from the envisioned destination. We look at ways that organizations and managers end up preventing the inverted pyramid so that if you are on the journey, you will be less likely to fail in your efforts. One way the inverted pyramid can be 
perverted is if the new way of doing things is quickly perceived as window dressing. Some people think that empowering staff will be immediately welcomed by the staff and that given an opportunity, staff will take the opportunity like a duck takes to water. Experience tells us otherwise. Staff will show some degree of cynicism and even resistance. They'll flounder at the start, particularly if they are not used to using effective decision-making, problem-solving, and consensus-building techniques. When pyramid inversions fail, they don't do so randomly but share a common pattern. Generally, there are multiple causes for the failure. We find through AA's history the same thing that modern businesses like UPS find when it comes to delegating authority to the front line. Sometimes in AA, members and groups, their reaction to autonomy is mixed. Some will be enthusiastic, some neutral, some cynical or resistant. In 12-step rooms, resistant groups look to central offices to resolve their internal quarrels. Where they have the freedom to do what they want, they ask instead for lists of what can or cannot be read, rituals that can or cannot be done. Members will ask more experienced members what to say to a newcomer, when it's generally sufficient to share our own experience with the newcomer without offering any instruction. In other cases, all we need to do is listen. People don't need to be told as much as we need to feel that we're being heard. So, in our 12-step circles, as far as, you know, what's happening member to member and this inverted triangle idea, personal breakthroughs, if that's the goal, can't be facilitated by a holy writ, a chain of command, a hierarchy of authority, as we would imagine an army or a religion to be organized in. Personal breakthroughs or recovery or peace or enlightenment, call it what you will, happen when the individual has freedom and the group and or sponsor can only help. The reason we have autonomy is because we all do things according to our style and our personality. There is no how-to for overcoming alcoholism, no matter how much we wish there was one. Now, from Wikipedia, because that's where everything's true, the English term enlightenment is the Western translation to the term Bodhi, awakening, which has entered the Western world via the 19th century translation of Max Muller. It was the Western connotation of a sudden insight into a transcendental truth. The term is also being used to translate several other Buddhist terms and concepts used to denote insight, knowledge, the blowing out of disturbing emotions and desires, and the subsequent freedom or release. Does that sound like recovery? Wikipedia defines this as the attainment of Buddhahood. In the Western world, the concept of spiritual enlightenment has taken on a romantic meaning. It has become synonymous with self-realization or the true self. So even if your worldview includes a supernatural force which has an order to the universe or a plan, I hope we can agree that faith isn't a cure for addiction. 
that self-sufficiency, even for the most intellectually or spiritually gifted, is inadequate for recovery, at least for 12-step candidates. It's the eyeball-to-eyeball, human-to-human interaction that manifests the right environment for recovery. It is the blind leading the blind, a brethren of equals, that one might assume would lead to two falling in the pothole instead of one. But no, the blind leading the blind does lead to awakening or enlightenment. That's why Erica Spiegelman is so into one-on-one connections, be it professional or peer-to-peer relationships. Yes, we need the experience and power of example of the group, but we also need or crave, as Alan M. referred to in A Member's Eye View of AA, to find at least one other human being before whom we can stand completely naked, stripped of all pretense or defense, and trust that that person will not hurt us because the other person has stripped themselves naked too. The link to Erica's book is www.rewired.us. You can get the book directly from Rebellion Dogs Publishing Bookstore. Uh, Let's go to our interview with Erica now. Erica Spiegelman was planning on being at Book Expo America also, where I just came back from. We planned on talking there. She couldn't make it, and we caught up by phone. Erica in L.A. and me in Toronto. Hello. Hello, Erica. How are you? Hi, Joe. So good to finally connect. I know. It's great. Uh, Love your book, by the way. Just to to get you off the hook, wondering if he's skeptical or... uh, an admirer. Well, I'm glad you. I'm glad you read it. I'm glad you bought it. Uh, it's it, this is funny because this is the time now where people are actually giving me feedback. They've had enough time to order it, get it, read it. You know. Yeah, there's that that in between, right? Uh, when you're writing it, you just can't tell. Does this make sense? Right. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we all go through that. I think. Yeah. Absolutely. It makes sense too. That's why you have to have a good team and a good, you know, good people behind you for parts of this process, you know? Yeah. New York. So how was New York? Uh, New yeah. York was fantastic. Uh, Book Expo America was, uh, I, I mean, it was, was overwhelming. It there was so much. There yeah. was a bloggers conference. It was a real mixture of sort of the old guard and the new wave. Mm-hmm. I learned this. I'm from the music business, and, and we've already seen this sort of digitalization impact right. the music business, and it's going to happen to the publishing business, too. And uh, they're right. just about 10 years behind that cycle. I was at Canadian Music Week, and there was uh, a panel called The Future of Radio, uh, hosted by a 55-year-old white guy with a panel uh-huh. of five other f- white men in their 60s or 50s. There was no one uh-huh. in the audience even under 25, and it was a music festival. <laughs> wow, that's so crazy. Yeah, it's so a, crazy. Yeah, exactly. So there's a little of that in the crazy. publishing industry, too. You know, right, right. I, I heard someone talking about there's just too many titles. If I heard a reader say there are too many titles, that would be useful information to me. But people in Goodreads read three titles a, a month. I mean, they consume books. Yeah. A- and they also know where to go to for recommendations. They already have a network, but the old right, guard right. isn't quite ready for all that yet. <laughs> I know, I know. It's so, it's so amazing learning about all of it. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, but I'll uh, yeah I'll tell you all about that next time because we're on limited time. Uh, yes, that's true. <laughs> but I'd be happy to share all of that information with you. Oh, it's okay. Erica, thanks for being with us. You know, those are strong words uh, in your title, bold new approach. It's almost like yeah. marketing words. But I read it, <laughs> and you're right. It is bold, and it is new. Mm -hmm. Uh, you don't actually parrot uh, or criticize the existing modalities or popular addiction recovery paradigm right now, but you have your own way of doing things. Yeah, that's correct. We'll talk about uh, uh, some of them. I love authenticity. That's mm -hmm. something I, I'm big on. And I, I just okay. want to know how this came about. You do share some of your own personal experience with addiction and recovery, you're um, a counselor, so you use some case studies. Um, was this sort of trial and error or learning from sages? Or, or how did these 12 principles uh, sort of come to you as the, the basics for going from addiction yeah. to recovery? Well, it's a great question. Uh, Multi-layered. And it started with frustration that I had to getting sober, changing my life. Um, and running into a wall when it came to um, finding my own path. You know, there's, there's pretty much one clear path that most people take, and, and that's a, a, a step program, like whatever that, you know. Yeah. It's amazing and saves millions and has saved millions of lives, and I absolutely learned that way and learned what addiction was and learned that I wasn't alone and learned that, you know, there are and, and ways to, to re wire your life and your brain, but for me, I needed more. I wanted to add some mindfulness to my life. I wanted to educate myself on how to take care of my body with nutrition and adequate sleep, and, and you know, that wasn't being talked about. And I, you know, for me, I, I love to actually learn and then put things into action because that's the way things stick. So there was nothing else out there like that that said, hey, you know, here's Here's a way to do it. Here's some tools. Uh, put it into action. Then see how you feel. And then you feel great, so you do the next best thing. And um, it came to be that I was a writer my whole life before any of this um, happened. And I went back to school at UCLA and got my degree in addiction therapy and studied the brain and studied the body and the mind and, and emotional intellect. And then I began to write this book for the people that may not have access to these alternative ways of thinking. Right. And authenticity was the first, that was actually, my first title was like, you know, ulti the ultimate freedom to authenticity. It was, it was more like my first idea for the book was, wow, like I've come so far in my own journey. And really what that was about was tapping into my authentic self. And with that being said, you know, the word authenticity means coming from the author. So if we all were an author of our own lives, what would that look like? And then I thought, you know, we all need an individualized recovery plan because that is what's different. We all have different backgrounds, families, traumas. Um, we're wired differently. We have different emotional capabilities. So again, with all that, we need our own individualized plan. We can't just send everybody to one, you know, on one boat and tell everyone to get better, you know? Now, what is bold about that is it does fly in the face of some bumper stickers in recovery, like fake it till you make it, or your own right. thinking got you here. Your own you thinking, can't trust thinking, right. Yeah. Yeah. Do you find resistance to the idea of 
authenticity being a starting place? Well, I, you know, I, clients ask me this all the time in my private practice, and, and they'll say to me, you know, well, my thinking is what got me here, and, you know, I'm, I'm scared about following my instincts, and, and I, you know, and, and I say, well, that's why you're in therapy, that's why you're part of my rewired plan is seeking help outside just yourself, obviously, mm-hmm. but also to honor those instincts, because once you put the the substances down and you're abstinent from ingesting poison, then you need to begin to start building that muscle of instinct again. So yes, you may be a little shaky, you may be a little off, but yeah, if you get into a new friendship relationship, you meet someone, you get a really bad feeling about them, you don't feel like something's off. I would go with those instincts. It doesn't matter if you were uh, you know, alcoholic before that. As long as you're getting help, you're on your way to a better way of living I think it's good to start kind of honoring those instincts like everybody comes to me and they're so doubtful and they have to get up every day and say I'm a this I'm a that I have awful you know but there's so many negative things that so many negative things and mantras I hear from different modalities where Uh, I don't think it's effective yeah yeah in AA folklore of course there is a passage in the uh, spiritual appendix which says we found we tapped an unsuspected inner resource. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I suppose authenticity leads to sort of tapping that, you, you know, reconnecting with the, the self that... Inner resource. Yeah, yeah. exactly, that you could, could trust. Another Absolutely. one that yeah. uh, solitude, which isn't isolation. Of course, addiction, we know about isolation. And it we put walls up, there's barriers between us and healthy living and and good relationships but Mm -hmm. uh you talk about solitude again people say meetings 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 you know in your own company you're in bad company so so where did you (laughs) how did you discover this with all of the noise of you know that the counterintuitive yeah Yeah, another great question um (laughs) it's you know it, it it really happened from my own experience you know for many years i distracted myself with Substances, I distracted myself with uh, abusive and unhealthy people, technology, you know, food, whatever it was. It was, mm-hmm. it was anything to kind of distract. And so when I actually stopped distracting with those external substances, I sat with myself one day and I'm thinking, I have to relearn how to just be in silence with myself, to go take a hike without putting on music, let's say. And eventually mm-hmm. that's nice to do that too. But but to just to hear my thoughts or to go take a bath or to go just something by yourself where you're not you're not gone the whole day. You're not disconnecting and isolating, but to take those 15 to 30 minutes a day to really just, how do I feel? You know, for me, I started with saying, what I was grateful for. I would get up in the morning, I would take a run, and after my run, I'd stretch, and I would just take those 15 minutes to go over my head what I was grateful for, and sit down and meditate a little bit, and it changed my life because I could finally, finally work through some of those thoughts and process the big changes that were going on, and you can't really process and do that if you have constant noise and distraction. Yeah, it's a balance, isn't it? It is. It's a balance. And I, yeah, and of course, I'm, never, I'm not saying to just completely be in solitude the rest of your life. It's, to have a community and love in your life is just super important. But I think it's really important to be your number one champion, to love yourself, to get to know yourself, to, to feel safe within yourself more than anything. And why is time management such a factor? I know that if we don't value our own time, 
that's a sign of a, a lack of self-love. I found that my old identity when I was living in an unhealthy way, it, it, I associated things with being a procrastinator, being lazy, being unorganized, inefficient. Well, of course I was because I was completely miserable and, um, you know, hijacked by substances. So I, I, I assumed that was my identity. I assumed that, that I'm just always late and that I just have no time management skills and I don't value, you know, my boundaries, my time. I had no boundaries. So with that being said, when I changed my life and started to see, wow, I like getting up early and being organized, being effective and, and showing up early and, and or even on the dot and that really served me well, made me so proud of myself. And I think having boundaries makes you feel proud of yourself, too. It's all positive reinforcement by saying to someone, you know, no, I can't go pick up so-and-so from the airport, or no, I, I instead I have to go take a run, you know, or you don't have to even tell people what it is you're doing. But to honor yourself, take care of yourself, put yourself and your health first, that's where time management comes in. Because we're procrastinating, going to a doctor, paying our bills, getting our car fixed, all these things that hangs over our head. And then we feel disappointed in ourselves, even on a subconscious level, even if you're not conscious of it and then that leads to being stressed which leads to using substances it also also helps give us a a sense like a a maturing of a sense of our limits uh that only so much can be done in a day Uh, you had a tweet recently it said hold yourself to a standard of grace and not perfection there are Mm -hmm. no mistakes in life just experience and sometimes i get overwhelmed by putting too much on my plate. I got to get this done and this done and this done and this done. And no two people could do those things. And then I uh, shit or shit all over myself for not accomplishing it. Right. Right. Exactly. You're not alone. There's there's so many people out there like that, you know? I heard that once. (laughs) Yes. Yes. But that's why, you know, the more that, the more that you identify these shoulds and, you know, it's not so much, who should we be doing things for? It's not for anyone else but ourselves. And I think once we get to, like I say to myself now, mm-hmm. okay, Erica, would you would you want your laundry done tomorrow morning? Would that make your day easier tomorrow? Or, or should we still procrastinate another week? You know, and then I'll say to myself, <laughs> well, I would be a happier version of myself tomorrow What if I did this. So you know what? I'm going to do it. And I do it. Or I put my shoes like by the bed with my running outfit like near the bed so that I have something right there so I don't procrastinate. I mean, there's little tricks and, and things that I, you know, through the years have, have come <laughs> up with and, and I share because it's very helpful. You think about your future self. I mean, if you think about your future self and say, what would make me feel more content, less stressed, less anxious at the end of the week if I were to do this one task? Mm-hmm. And and you'll probably say to yourself, I would be, and you know what? I have to honor myself, love myself, and I'm going to do it. And you wrote this week about uh, self-care, saying that self-care, of course, it's a no-brainer. Who wouldn't want to do things that feel good? But you say that self-care isn't just about what we need to survive, but what we need to thrive. And you talk about uh, three myths about Mm -hmm. self-care. One is Mm -hmm. that I already know how to take care of myself, or self-care is selfish, or you know, uh, you know, I should be thinking of others, or self-care means doing anything that feels good. Self-care, people, you know, I get this question all the time. Well, so-and-so says it's selfish because I, you know, I'm just 
thinking about my own health right now. And, and for me, I, I, it's a non-negotiable. It was a non-negotiable for me when I was changing my life. If somebody has a problem with you taking care of yourself, whether that's a projection of their own abandonment issues or their projection of them feeling like you don't love them or you're not, you know, I, I doubt it's really pure selfishness. It's more of people have to get used to the fact that you're teaching them that you're changing your life. You're teaching them that you care about yourself again. You're teaching them that you're assuming a new identity. And people react with such fear of that, especially if you've been in the same pattern and cycle for years. You know, you've been the sick person. And now all of a sudden, you can't do this? And you're, what? You're, you're going to take care of yourself? I mean, people, it takes it's an adjustment period, too. Anybody that is in the first year of sobriety really needs to be um, extra selfish with their their time when it comes to their health. And other people will resist that because we all have roles to play or we, we there's dynamics right. in all of our relationships, right? Right. I was on a news show the other morning and she asked me that about, about the family and how important is it to have family involved. And I said, well, it's, it's a family issue. It absolutely, absolutely affects the family when you have one person that is struggling. Um, but with that being said, too, we, we can't ignore the fact that we've probably been put in some roles within within yeah. the, the family history. You know, some of us are the victim or the, the clown or whatever it is. You know, we, we, there's a couple of theories. Yeah, that. perpetrator, rescuer, run to the litter. Yeah. Right, exactly. There's so many different names, yeah. But what it comes down to is is that we do have to teach people how we want to be treated. And unfortunately, it does fall on us. And, and my clients will say... I don't even want to tell my mom that, you know, or I don't want to, it's so much effort. And it's just, it's getting back on that bicycle <laughs> after mm. you haven't been assertive for so long and yeah. be assertive and say, you know, I, I value my health now. I'm sorry. I can't in the morning. I have to get up and meditate or I have to get up and take a, a walk or I have, to, these are the things I have to do to, to, to care of myself now. These are non-negotiables and people that haven't had that you know, haven't had or taken that stance in their lives in a long time, it's going to be a little uncomfortable or awkward the first time you say it. But then eventually I think you feel, wow, I'm courageous for doing this. And I, I have such courage and strength instead of feeling bad about it. Uh, when when you say that, I, I wonder, is there a gender gap or a gender difference in recovery modalities in terms of the, you know, roles that others try to put men in or others try to put women in? Of course. I mean, that's a whole other group that I teach. But, yeah, um, if we take a look at what our society thinks a man should be, I mean, I have a lot of clients that come to me and, and no wonder why they've been addicted to drugs or alcohol for years because they were told when they were little boys, like, don't be a sissy, don't cry, be a man, stop complaining, and, and who do you think you are? And, and immediately they get turned down when they become emotional so they you know process that as emotions are bad I can't be emotional I can't show weakness and then of course we all are human we all need to show all of the sides yeah. of ourselves that's how these these cycles begin a lot of the, the women I know that have started with amphetamines and drugs like that it all started with oh they felt like they were you know they got skinny on it when they were young and they tried something when they were 15 or 16 and it started to regulate their weight and that turned into a full-blown addiction years yeah. later or you know, women have a lot of pressure too to to be a certain way now after your book is written are you still in private practice or are you on a whirlwind tour and thinking about your next book 
Well, both actually. Um, I have I have a private practice which I still see people in Los Angeles, um, and I have a phone I have phone sessions with people all over the country. So I, that's I consider my private practice. I do um, packages. They're all available on my website at ericaspiegelman.com. Um, I have a Get Rewired in 30 Days package where I send people videos and they can have one-on-one calls with me once a week, you know, for a set price. And, you know, so I, I have the packages going on. And then when I can, I have private clients in person in L.A. As long as, as, as well as, you know, getting out there. And I'll be at uh, the Celebrations of Recovery Conference in Atlanta um, the end of June, June 20, I mean, June 30th. Yeah. Um, so those, yeah, so just touring around, trying to get the word out, and also still helping my people. Well, you are very present to your readers because anyone can book a time to have at least a quick chat with you, right? Yes, I'm doing a, a free 15 minute consultation to to get to know my readers, get to know people that need help. I could assess quickly what maybe would be the best path for them and, you know, get them started on a healthy pattern, healthy life, uh, whatever that is that they're kind of looking for. That's uh, really cool. And, and I consider that sort of millennial thinking, right? Because, uh, yeah. you know, in the old school sort of baby boomer, the author and the audience, never the twain should meet other than passing a handshake and a signed book or something right. like that. Yeah. This kind of work for me is so personal and it's so... It's just, I think the exchange of energy has to be even, you know, like I want to be able for them to feel like I'm there for them. You know, even if it's they never meet me and they never have a phone conversation with me, I still want them to feel like they know me through, you know, social media or whatever it is. Because I think when you relate to someone on a personal level, it it makes things uh, more sustainable. And how would you uh, rate the addiction treatment infrastructure. I, I know with Obamacare, there's some changes going on in the U.S. at least. How is the industry doing and what are its biggest challenges? I've been talking about this a lot, the business of, of treatment. I, I work at an outpatient center uh, two days a week in the morning yeah. called Rebos, and really interesting that, you know, we have a really great program. We have, you know, eight individualized sessions a week, which is a lot, with, with four different kinds of therapists, like a spiritual counselor, chemical dependency. I think that with them, we're heading in the right direction. Um, and then there's, you know, other people that don't have access to treatment all over this country that don't have, they're not living near cities, or even there's a lot of cities that don't have uh, good treatment programs. Um, so I think there's a long way to go. But for what I've seen, and, and luckily the people I've been associated with, they see the importance of one-on-one therapy versus only group therapy. Right. For many years, everything was just group therapy. Even if you went to like a very high-end treatment center in like the 80s, I won't mention the name, yeah. but you know, <laughs> the, the bigger ones, they did not have any, I mean, they had maybe one, you had one individual session with a therapist a week. That is that is nothing. That's why, you know, with my clients, I insist on once a week a phone call, even after they're out of treatment because I do a lot of aftercare with people. So yeah. they need to stay connected to somebody. Yeah. And I think that's another big missing piece. But, but the treatment centers I've been working with around LA have kind of understood that. So it's changing and there's still a long way to go. Right. One last thing I want to ask you about, because here's, we all have biases. And mine is when I see the title Affirmations and Intentions, I think mm-hmm. of books that prey on people's magical thinking. 
you know, whatever mm -hmm. you can conceive, you can achieve type of, mm -hmm. you know, consumerism. Can you tell me your take on the role of affirmations and intentions? Yes, I would be my pleasure to. Um, affirmations and intentions is, is like the law of attraction. It's not magic, but it, if I wake up in the morning and I look at myself in the mirror and I say, oh, you're such a failure, you're... You know, you're, you haven't done anything with your life, you're already 35, you still haven't gotten sober, whatever it is, or if I don't, if I am not mindful of saying affirmations, which are, which are positive words to yourself, or intentions, which is what you want for your life, what is your intention, what is your desire, what is it that lights you up from the inside, and to say that every day and to get in the habit of that positive self-talk versus the negative self-talk that is going to change your energy, the energy you bring to a room, the energy you bring when you meet new people. It's going to be, it's going to be obviously, <laughs> it's going to be adding to your life as your self-esteem and how you assert yourself. So when I say affirmations, it's just to kind of get comfortable with some mantras, some words, some sayings that help you. And I have a bunch of them in my book, starting to treat yourself kindly. And, and that's through words, you know, I mean, that's, that's one way we can do it. So it's more of getting away from the negative self-talk, which I would say 95% of people have when they first get into treatment or they first start changing their lives or come out of a substance abuse, you know, kind of lifestyle. The Most of them are very ashamed of themselves. They're very upset with what's gone on, and, and they're really not in a place where they could say, you're wonderful, oh, how wonderful are you, you know? But as you, you put the substance down, you start to change your life and actually do good things for yourself. That's the time where you need to start sending your brain those messages. Like, I did that when I first got sober. I, I would run, or I'd run a block, or I'd run a half a block, and then I, the next week I'd be running a mile, and it just got better and better, and I would say, good job, you're so strong, you're so powerful, you did it, I'm so proud of you. I mean, it sounds silly, but I, this was one of the most important parts of get me getting sober and staying sober. I mean, I still to this day, like, I say a little, <laughs> I say a little prayer, a little something every time I do something that I'm proud of. <laughs> I well, do. Yeah, because I have to be my own champion, you know? Well, that that's, I mean, you're speaking from experience then. Yeah. I can't yeah. fight that. Again, uh, one last time, just so people can uh, find you. I mean, your book is an absolute recommend. It Thank is you. logical. It is rational. It is emotional. You know, it's very holistic. Do you see addiction as a disease, or do you prefer the behavior model? Do you get into that debate one way or another? I don't get into the debate because it's just... <laughs> You know, as I said, words are just words, but words, those kinds of words, it doesn't matter. If it makes you feel better to call it a disease, you know, sometimes I'll reference it as that, but I, I, I don't love it. Yeah, to be honest, yeah, I don't yeah. love it. You know, I had a client say to me, and he was, and he'd been through a lot of treatment treatment centers and tried this many times, and now he's, he's sober, but he says, you know what, it changed for me when I, I finally called it my experience with addiction. Instead oh, nice. of, for him, it, it didn't work when he kept saying, I'm an addict, I'm a this, I'm a that. I'm, for him, it wasn't changing his life. For, so when he finally said to me, you know, now I'm calling it my experience with addiction, that means, like, it, it was. It happened, it was a truth for him, he experienced it, and now he's moved on. So I like that. When you were describing him, I was feeling, when I was reading what you had to say about authenticity, 
that this yeah. is so important for people with chronic recidivism. They say all the right things. They know all the right words. They walk out right. the door like they're never going to pick up again. And then you don't see them for two months. And they come back right. and they go, I learned this time. Because they know what to say, but they haven't made it true for them. They haven't found their own truth about addiction or recovery, I think. Right, exactly. And so that's why it's, I still love to work with people one-on-one. -on -one and, you yeah. know, every week you, you, you learn from everyone else's experiences, too. Yeah. Well, you've been super generous uh, with your time. Uh, tell uh, listeners Thank again. Thank you for having me. I, oh, yeah. well, uh, it's a shame we couldn't do it face-to-face uh, -face in New York City. But it's a big continent, but the recovery world's a small town. We'll see you eventually. That's true. <laughs> yeah, of course. Of and uh, where do people reach you if they want to uh, get a hold of the book or send yeah. you a personal email? Yeah, they, well, my website is um, ericaspiegelman.com. So it's E-R-I-C-A-S-P as in Paul, I-E-G-E-L-M-A-N.com. Um, I have, my book is on Amazon, barnesandnoble.com. Yeah. It's in small independent bookstores all over the country and in Canada. But, you know, if it's easier for people to get online, they could certainly do that. And they could also get it at Penguin Random House. That's my distributor. Right on. So there's a couple of online outlets, yeah. Well, uh, I rolled my eyes as soon as I saw Bold and New, but it is both of those things. Thank you, Erica. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> okay, talk again soon, maybe. Absolutely. Okay. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much. Okay. Am I a real boy? No, Pinocchio. To make Geppetto's wish come true will be entirely up to you. Up to me? Prove yourself brave, truthful, and unselfish, and someday you will be a real boy. A real boy! That won't be easy. You must learn to choose between right and wrong. Right and wrong? But how will I know? How will I know? Your conscience will tell you. Prove yourself brave, truthful, and unselfish, and someday you will be a real boy. Awake, Pinocchio. Awake. Father! What you crying for? Because you're dead, Pinocchio. No! No, I'm not! Yes. Yes, you are. Now lie down. But, Father, I'm alive, see? And, and I'm, I'm... I'm real. That, if you didn't catch it, is from Pinocchio. Lately, I've been throwing in something that is designed for people under the age of 10. Just don't want anyone to think I feel intellectually superior to anybody. <laughs> Thanks again for being part of Rebellion Dogs Radio. If you get this book, I would like to hear what you have to say about it. I think it's right on, and it seems to be based on actual experience. Certainly not any authority. So have a look at it if you will, or whatever you're reading, let me know. Visit me on Goodreads. Visit me at rebelliondogs.com. You know where to find us on Facebook and Twitter, and hopefully one day... We'll see you in the rooms. So over and out from Rebellion Dogs Radio.